Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, a mobile phone app, and at the website SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Today we're coming to you from Georgetown in Washington, D.C. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as usual by the nefarious neo-Nashvillian nabob, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing very well. You know, as a, a nabob is generally considered someone who's made his fortune in the Asian continent and a man of wealth and prominence. I'm, you are. I'm very happy to hear you refer to me that way. Without using the adjective nattering. <laughs> no. But no. You, today you're free to natter. But um, Jeremy, you know, once upon a time, as you probably have heard, I was a graduate student at the University of Arizona in Tucson, working on Chinese history. One of history. your many failings. <laughs> One of my many failings, yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll explain why. Uh, it was a couple of years into my studies when the history department at the U of A hired this new guy who was specializing in Qing Central Asia, a guy who um, spoke a slew of obscure and mostly dead languages. And so, uh, of course, I signed up for some of his classes, um, various common interests, including but very much not limited to guitar sparked a friendship between us you know i think it's 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 lasted quite a number of years now i won't give away just exactly how long uh i really enjoyed my studies while i was there uh but it was too good to last he got hired away by georgetown where he's now tenured and so i kind of lost interest in 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 academia and graduate school and i drifted aimlessly back to Beijing to a life of dissipation and heavy metal music. Uh, meanwhile, Jim went on, Jim Millward, our guest today, went on to become one of the world's leading scholars on Xinjiang and Central Asia, publishing some great books like Beyond the Pass, which is about commerce and ethnicity in the Qing's Central Asian territories, and Eurasian Crossroads, which was a very, very readable general history of Xinjiang. Both of these books have been recommended on this show. And recently, Jeremy, you even plugged Jim's book for the Oxford Very short introduction series. It was called The Silk Road, right? That is right. Great little volume. So uh, today, uh, we are delighted to chat with Jim about Xinjiang, about the historical Silk Road, and about China's recent efforts to revive the Silk Road through its not very uh, euphonious One Belt, One Road initiative, and also about Jim's ongoing work on the history of the guitar and its plucked chordophone ancestors uh, and we're going to try and define what chordophone means um, <laughs> and, and then this is you know something that is intimately connected with the silk road and then so that of course if there's time we're also going to talk about the debate around new ching history nihilists all a nest of villainous revisionists like jim here jim well anyway welcome to seneca for the first of what we hope will be many shows with us thanks kaiser it's great to be here yeah, and uh, thanks for welking us into your, your delightful home, which is where we were. This is Seneca Home Invasion Series number three, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jim, there isn't any easy or obvious way to kind of 
pull apart this whole cluster of topics that we want to get to with you. So let's just start with maybe some work that you, you began years ago. I mean, it's, it was quite a number of years ago where you were looking at the history of the guitar and then I guess of the lute and other, what did, what did you call them? Cordophone instruments, Jeremy? Cordophone instruments. Word. So how did the project that basically set out to trace this history of this particular instrument or family of instruments wind up becoming like a general look at the fabled Silk Road? And also, let's define what the Silk Road is, if we can, and also what cordophone means. <laughs> okay. Well, it all, it, it all goes back to a rather extended midlife crisis that I think I'm still engaged in. But uh, the initial idea was looking at the guitar and how the guitar got all around the world and has different cultural expressions and meanings in all sorts of different places. And then meanwhile, of course, I work on Central Asia and, and Xinjiang and parts of the world that are known as you know, Silk Road. And so in the midst of trying to get uh, research money, get grant support to write this grand global history of the guitar that I'd been envisioning for years, um, I wrote another little book, and that's the book on the Silk Road for Oxford that um, Jeremy mentioned uh, before. And in the course of doing that, I started thinking, all right, well, what is the Silk Road? What isn't the Silk Road? And one of the things that I decided the Silk Road isn't is something that ended in the 16th century or in 1500. Now, often people say that it ended then because that's when European maritime connections with Asia, you know, opened up. Right. Yeah, Magellan and and all the right. right. And 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 so there's been an argument that the Silk Road was sort of the economic corridor across Eurasia, you know, between China and Rome from antiquity until the 16th century. And then the Europeans came along and with their boats, you know, opened up new trade channels and Central Asia died because the, the economics, the trade, the commerce was all cut off as a result of that. And that's just not true. And it would be sort of a longer conversation to go into all this. But one of the things that we see is that just, for example, in the Ming Dynasty and in the Qing Dynasty, there's a good deal of exchange going on across the territory that's now Xinjiang, and in fact, uh, increasing. Right? All the tea trade with Russia, for example, rhubarb trade with Central Asia, and so on. All of this is, that, is, is increasing in this early modern period, not decreasing. Which way was rhubarb going? I and mean, why don't I, like, have I never had rhubarb pie, say, in, in China? Um, well, you've probably seen da huang, uh, ah. if you've been into a pharmacy. You know, the sort of Chinese apothecaries, um, you know, big yellow. And what that is, is the root of a strain of rhubarb that's grown in the highlands, in the sort of Tibetan highlands and Tibetan foothills. Okay. And it's, it's medicinal. Medicinal. It's a highly astringent. It's also a good dye stuff. Very, you know, it's big oh, okay. and yellow, right? So right. It's very bright yellow. Anyway, so that was a big trade off. Anyway, there's all sorts of, you know, things like that going on. And so, in talking about uh, the Silk Road, one of the things I argued is that it didn't die when everyone said it did. Right. And then I also like to point out that we tend to think of the Silk Road in terms of its termini, in terms of China and Rome, uh -huh. right? And that's what's exciting. That's what's sexiest about it. It's like things went from you know, one point way in the East to one point way in the West and vice versa. Whereas for the most part, what was going on was shorter distance trade, local, regional, trade. And it wasn't a road either. And this is the third big myth. You know, it's not like Route 66 crossing uh, the middle of the continent, but rather, as you would expect with any kind of you know, trade relationships, it's a series of, uh, of networks, right. right? From smaller 
um, to larger entrepot uh, and so on. So anyway, thinking about all of those things, I realized that there's a lot of mythology in how we think about the Silk Road, but it's also a very important, very popular, and really kind of very saleable concept, right? If you think about all the museum exhibitions, restaurants, uh, fashion boutiques, uh, all these things which sort of wrap themselves around the notion of the Silk Road, not to mention you know, travel companies. Music, right. right. right I right. mean, nothing against our friend Yo-Yo Ma, who's done great things with, with his idea. But I think that actually exemplifies what I'm talking about. He was able to use that concept to, A, bring together these musicians, B, commission all sorts of great new music that, for the most part, works in terms of fusion, Sometimes not so much, but you know, cre creates something new that's also that's also related to something old. But one of the reasons, one of the ways he was able to do that, of course, was with this notion of Silk Road, which is exciting to people, is exotic, um, which speaks to uh, people coming together in an era when the clash of civilizations and so many other things going on in the world tend to argue that we're but, more divided. But there is, of course, some some truth in some of those notions. I mean, you know, if I recall, I spent some time traveling around Xinjiang and seeing Muslim people leaving little flags on the top of mountains, uh, on mountain passes, just like Tibetan Buddhists do, where, you know, quite clearly there was a kind of a, a cultural transmission that had happened from where to where, I don't even know, but where Muslims were, were basically doing a, a ritual that was sort of Buddhist in form. Buddhist or shamanistic. Or shamanistic. Right. Yeah. So little flags and piles of stones, cow skulls or goat skulls and bundles of sticks. You see them in Mongolia as well. So the, Right. And that's precisely what I think you know, I, I just mentioned about the Silk Road is not. I think one of the things that it is are these cultural substrata that are you know, they're in all sorts of different places. Often they surprise you, but that are, are you know, very basic, low-level things that, that many of us share. And one example I, I gave in the book is the notion of the, of the fasces, or the fasces, mm -hmm. you know, the bundle of sticks representing unity, representing strength. It was a Roman symbol. Actually, here in Washington, D.C., if you walk around, look at the Department of Justice, sort of neoclassical architecture, you'll see these things all over the place. I think they may be on, on our currency as well. Sure. And that's actually where the word fascist comes exactly. from. But exactly. So Mussolini picked up on <laughs> right. it, too. Italy in the 1920s and 30s. Right. right. But there's a series of, of stories that shows up in Aesop's fables. It shows up in the Russian folktales. Um, I've... Um, and and Genghis Khan and, with his five sons. Exactly. Or, 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 or. Um, you know, and there, of course, they're not talking about sticks. They're talking about arrows. But, right. but which one of the sons, you know, if you hold five arrows together, you can't break them an arrow by itself. You can break. And that's the story. And my favorite example of this, I was in Four, four sons. I'm, I'm only thinking. Or however, four. well, anyway, the, the story is told in different ways. And um, my favorite example was I was watching TV in Taiwan when I was first learning Chinese. This was back in the 1980s. And... Um, so, you know, because I was learning, I was watching kindergarten shows and um, there, you know, the teacher comes out, you know, teacher Zhang and all the little toddlers and it was drinks time, snack time. And she brought out the juice boxes and then she said, you know, come along, children. And she gave them each the straws from the juice boxes and asked if they could bend them in half. And of course they could. And then she put five of them together and asked the kids if they could bend them. And I can't. And then she said, Right, of course. Right. So anyway, that's a story, and it's unique enough 
that we know it's not it's most likely not independently invented everywhere, but it's something that has spread and become, as I say, part of a common cultural substratum all the way across Eurasia and then now globally as well. It showed up in the Planet of the Apes movie, which you probably didn't see. No, I did. I did. Caesar, to... Caesar the chimpanzee right. when he's trying to teach this lesson to his uh, sort of unruly band of other simians. <laughs> he pulls together a bunch of sticks and shows them and, you know. Um, absent language, they're not, nonetheless able to figure out this. And, uh, and he got it oh, from the Silk Road. And, he did. Um, <laughs> he was just a smart chimp, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> no, he was. I mean, he'd been genetically modified or something, right? I mean, that was the whole premise of that. So can we like uh, shoot forward a couple of hundred years or several hundred years and, and, and look at One Belt, One Road? Um, the newest iteration of the Silk the Road. The newest iteration, which I don't know why and how the propaganda people in Beijing didn't just call New Silk Road, which would have you know made a whole lot more sense. Instead, we have Obor, One Belt, One mm. Road. How should we think about it? You know, Is it a response to the American pivot and TPP or maybe to the, the perception that American policy has failed in, in, in parts of the world? And how does it tie into the Shanghai Cooperation Organization? Well, first of all, you know, Silk Road initiatives of one sort or another, and also Western development initiatives in China are nothing new. There was the Open the Great West program starting several years ago, been New Silk Roads, the Eurasian Bridge, right? So these kind of ideas are not particularly new. They've been repackaged as One Belt, One Road. Mm -hmm. And what One Belt, One Road adds to this is it links up sort of South China Sea and maritime connections with the sort of Silk Road idea. And that may be where, you know, Ilui Dai comes from. Unfortunately, that comes to places like Washington. We turn it into an ugly acronym, OBOR. OBOR. And a boring acronym as well, possibly. So the wonderful romance of the Silk Road is somewhat tarnished by that. And yet they clearly want to invoke the romance well, of the exactly. Silk Road. Well, exactly. And I think it's very, much, it's very much there. And I think in many ways, it's, a, it's actually a very sensible and, and a brilliant strategy or a brilliant piece of policy marketing. Yeah. We call uh, that propaganda. Well, yeah, but you know, there's propaganda and there's propaganda and and you know, some works, some does not. And and I think this works for, for various reasons. One of the best ways to to see how it works is actually to look at another Silk Road initiative, that of the United States. We uh -huh. have a Silk Road it's called New Silk Road program or New Silk Road initiative, which was rolled out I think in two thousand eleven. And its goals are to obviously help uh, the economies of Afghanistan, um, help India and Pakistan get along better, link up in particular India with Central Asia. And it was rolled out by then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and with a lot of fanfare, but of course, no, no money behind it. And we hear nothing of it these days. Anyway. Right. It's still formally there, but it, it sort of died. But one of the interesting things about it was that they talked about the ancient Silk Road as a corridor linking you know, India with Central Asia, huh. uh, South and Central Asia. And so to invoke a notion of the Silk Road that leaves out, what, China and Iran, China and Persia, which were the traditionally you know, most <laughs> important uh, players on it and you know, the, the, the sources of mo much of the culture that was being exchanged, that just doesn't work, right? It, 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 it does not pass the historical test, right. even among people who don't know historical specifics. It doesn't quite work. So that was a bit of a, you know, so stillborn effort. But for China to talk about the Silk Road, they have real Silk Road credibility, obviously. And um, 
have been playing with these ideas and rolling them out uh, for a long time. So it works. Uh, and I'll, I'll give another example. In one of, I believe it was Xi Jinping's speeches about this, or in, again, some of the propaganda, the white paper associated with the rollout of the One Belt, One Road program, there was a phrase that, you know, thanks to One Belt, One Road, the, the Dapeng, will spread its wings and fly over Eurasia. Pong, what, Pong is the rock, R-O-C, well, it, right? Exactly. So. And there was one English translation of this that I read, and they translated it as eagle. Huh. Right. And I and actually wrote to the author and said, you can't translate it as eagle. And the author was afraid that no one would know what a dapang was or a rock or the simurg is the Persian. Uh, the other, right, right, right. You know. But why is that important? Because just, we should ID uh, this dapang. I mean, this comes from Zhuangzi, right? Right. It's already there in Zhuangzi, but it's used later on to translate the South Asian Buddhist concept of the of the Garuda. Oh, okay, okay, okay. The Garuda, um, yeah. The Garuda, Garuda the yeah. great bird, right? The um, national airline of Indonesia. Of Indonesia. Right? It's also used to translate the Persian mythological bird of the Simurg, which is very important in the Shahnama, which is not just... This is a great sort of myth-historical text, which is known not just by people in Iran, but by people in all over Central Asia. Yeah, so it's like proto-Aryan mythology or something. Um, or? And beyond. I mean, it was written in the 11th or oh, 12th okay, so century. Oh, a little later than that. Then. <laughs> but it includes mythology, but also a lot of history. Anyway, it's, it's not well known in the Western world, but it, it's an extremely important um, poem, really. It's an epic poem, as, right. as important or more so than, you know, it's like the Iliad, the Odyssey, and all the Greek and Roman myths kind of rolled in together. Right. So use of this word dapang, is actually then touching on the, the mythology and the history shared mythology of, all of, of Buddhist lands and also of many Islamic lands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and that's of course why eagle wouldn't work. Not to mention the fact that the eagle is a symbol of America, and one thing that the Dapung does not do is fly over America, or it's not you know it's not an American drone <laughs> being controlled from the U.S. And that's also part of the point. So so symbolically then, and in terms of being able to reference a shared history which, of course, is imagined as a shared history of prosperity, history of amicable relations between China and Central Asia, South Asia, Iran, the Arab lands, and all the way to Europe. The Silk Road has that force as a a concept, as an idea. And China can link its wagon to that in a way that the U.S. certainly cannot. And, of course, implicitly, it excludes the U.S., but without having to come right out and explicitly exclude the U.S. From right, it. right, right. Unlike TPP, which, you know... Unlike TPP. Right. So you were asking, you know, is this a response to the pivot, uh, the U.S. You know, pivot to Asia? And yes, but it's, it's not an entirely new idea. It's kind of a, a new packaging and an amped up, new, improved, and larger packaging of approaches and ideas that have been there for so is, is this what you mean by silk roadism i've heard you make reference to this sort of body of ideas yeah i mean i'm not quite I, i've thrown that word around and i'm not sure if i've defined it thoroughly myself or for myself but exactly it's playing on the idea of the silk road for these sorts of purposes for other purposes well, it's potent valences i mean it's a it's a terrific idea right i'm full of yeah. fascinating um but you know you've talked about obor as being both an internationalist idea, as we've just talked about, but also that has strong nativist or, or at least nationalist kind of I- ideas embedded in it. Can you explain what these, I mean, the internationalist ideas are maybe a little more obvious, but what about this nativist element? Yeah, so I, I am, so I get this from 
actually what might be seen as sort of the the, the proto obor or proto one belt one road and, and this was an article by wang ji si the sure. um head of the is it foreign policy school mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at beijing university be, yeah, Peking and um so he wrote an article several years ago that argued that um china should um should turn west or look to the west by which he meant not you know, the, the Western West. world, uh-huh. but to literally China's West. And his reasons were, he had two or three of them. And one was to improve the development of China's own sort of inland-lying territories. But another was to avoid unnecessary friction, particularly with the United States, in places like the South China Sea, over small rocks, you know, north of Taiwan, and these kinds of things like that. And um, he was arguing that China's traditional backyard is in Central Asia. And right now, or at that point, the relative vacuum of power following the U.S. retreat from Afghanistan provided an opportunity for China to play a larger role. He tied all that to China's historical presence there. And he used a lot of terminology which came from Han Dynasty and Tang Dynasty materials, from Buddhism. And in so doing, I think it's fair to say he was almost dog-whistling or, or at least, you know, he was referencing China's imperial glory in the Han, Han and, and Tang, Tang period, yeah. things which, you know, Chinese readers were very much like. I would um, never do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the... Um, well, why, that, why so, the Han so, and the So Tang? that's why I say, so, so that notion then of China looking west towards its traditional backyard like this and areas where it was great in the Han and the Tang then plays on a notion of specifically Chinese glory and greatness, right, which is... is obviously popular among nationalistic Chinese. But at the same time, it's an internationalist idea because the Silk Road is all about connecting different places and different cultures. So that's why I mean that one of the nice things about the Silk Road idea is that it does bridge that gap between nativist, nationalistic sentiments and internationalist policies. But Jim, on that point, I mean, uh, the greatness of the Tang uh, you know, a big part of that was its cosmopolitanism. There were, you know, hundreds of thousands of foreigners going in and out of China and playing major roles in the government, in business, trade, uh, the arts. And that seems, that kind of cosmopolitan vision seems to be lacking from Beijing's idea of one belt, one road. I mean, there's business, there's trade, but it's all very China-led and very kind of paternal, right? And the marketplace of ideas is not a, not a big place where well, foreigners are welcome to participate. It, I guess I, there's a couple aspects to it. Again, my my sense of this is based on reading, you know, some of the speeches and you know the formal, again, propagandistic statements of it. But so I'm analyzing it, you know, as a text as opposed to as a policy. But I think right now we don't really know where too many of these policies are going. We're seeing some of the. You know, some of the investment happy. But in any case, I, th- I think it's ambiguous. On the one hand, it does seem to be about creating, you know, high speed links, the high speed rail links that will allow Chinese products to be moved uh, more quickly across Eurasia to Europe, mainly European markets. I mean, many people have interpreted it that way. And indeed, right. that seems to be part of it. Or to improve China's access and improve the quality of ports in the Bay of Bengal and the Arabian Ocean and so on. The road part of Obor, right? So the the maritime The maritime road, which is confusing, right, that the road is on the ocean and the belt is on land, right? But And of course, as many people have pointed out, there's a strategic aspect of at least building the, you know, the belt 
overland uh, in that opening up communication corridors, which are not easily blocked by you know, American military force, right. like the Straits of Malacca can be. That's obviously in China's strategic interest. All right. So there's that very you know, sort of cynical interpretation of it, that it's really just about helping China export more efficiently overland. But if you actually look at a lot of the programs, they do offer things for countries in between. It's not just about the terminuses. It's, it's, it's about you know, Central Asian countries. And there, they adopt a very clear developmentalist kind of ideology, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Which, which is very similar to the kind of things which sort of World Bank and IMF talk about. I mean, methods are probably different and, and, and standards of investment and so on are likely different. But it's really the same kind of developmentalist internationalism, which you hear the U.S. and some other Western powers and international organizations talking about, too. You know, development, not just making money. So in this, this is sort of ties that then to, you know, AIIB then at the same time, the Asia Exactly, which of course it is bank. financially linked right. as well. So I think China is not simply making a, this is not just a material, a commercial kind of play. I think it's also a play of ideas, to, just to get back to what Jeremy was saying, and that they're trying to be a player on the world stage that offers development aid, that offers investments in infrastructure outside of China that will help other countries. And I, I was recently in, in, in Pakistan, in Lahore, and had conversations there about China with several people. And I was very, very struck by how important China's potential investment in Pakistan is to everybody there, even you know students and so on. I mean, you know, they talked about sixty-five billion dollars, fifty-four billion. I can't okay, remember okay, the right. number, but everyone in Lahore knows that number. Okay, right. right? And um, they may not know very much about China, but th- this is a very big deal. Something about lips and teeth, or something. So, well, right. This is, this is a very big deal, and that money for all of the problems with corruption and everything else that we often talk about it with Chinese foreign investment, or particularly this kind of state-sponsored stuff. Nonetheless, it's going to have an impact on China's relationships, obviously, with these with these countries, which are worth watching. I mean, in the realm of ideas, China has always sort of bristled about the the idea that that, that Silk Road hasn't figured in developmental discourse as it ought to have. Yeah, I mean, and and it it should have, right? I mean, it it really. I think we've we've kind of ignored it because again we've looked at the terminuses. Uh, we forget how in the 11th century the great centers of of learning, the great centers of civilization, were actually Central Asian cities, right? I mean, Samarkand and Bukhara, and uh, I mean, Merv and, and and what have you. These were just just phenomenal centers of civilization, right? Uh, I mean, is this what what China is also sort of getting at? I'm pushing this idea of a, a Renaissance akin to what Frederick Starr wrote about. Ah, um, that would be wonderful if China had embraced the ideas of Frederick Starr after having sort of banned everyone who contributed to an earlier book of his. But uh, <laughs> we'll get I to think that too. There's, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about culture and cultural exchange associated with with these initiatives as well. I think they don't really rise beyond, you know, song and dance shows and. You know, exchanges, yeah, alas, musicians and and these kinds of things. What, um, what about all of this stuff in relation to Xinjiang? I mean, obviously, it, it's an, in, an incredibly problematic area for China. I mean, we're taping here today; it's July seventh, and, and if you go back just eight years, eight years ago, right now, the streets of Urumqi were still just there's rioting and counter rioting. First, you know, by the Uyghurs and then by Han. That was I mean, 
began on July 5th, 2009. And it was two days after download.org was blocked, which I think uh, oh, is yeah. the real cause. That's probably the real reason. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. In the time since, there have been just been like a, a whole slew of incidents in cities and towns of Xinjiang, in, in Khotan, uh, in, in Yarkhan two years ago. And then there were lots of highly publicized incidents of violence, probably the most notable of which was the knife attack that took place in Kunming in March of 2014. I think there's like 29 people killed, not even including the four uh the, the four attackers who were actually killed and many, many who were wounded. Uh, there was also the attack in the coal mine in September, I guess, of, of 2015, uh, which left uh, many dead as well. And this has sparked a lot of controversy, uh, not just over Chinese policy, as one would expect, but also over the way that it's been covered. Anyway, the point is Xinjiang right. has been really problematic. Right. Is, is, is any of this, of the, are these overtures toward other Central Asian governments, toward Pakistan, are they uh, sort of roundabout ways of, of trying to address the Xinjiang situation? So it's very ironic that on the one hand, there is all the uh, sort of ideology associated with Obor about cultural confluence and about you know, China's close relations with the largely Islamic countries to its west, while on the other hand, Islam itself seems to be a source of concern for the party and government leaders with regard to Xinjiang and the, and the threat of Xinjiang terrorism. And um, there was one very interesting expression of this recently played out in headlines of uh, Indian and, and Pakistan newspapers, because it, it being Ramadan, the uh, restrictions which China poses upon Usually, mainly students, party members. That's right. People, people working not, for not government everyone, institutions, but, right? Um, are you know? But in Xinjiang, not not so much in other parts of China or for other Muslim groups besides the Uyghurs. But but Uyghur party members and students and certain other groups are not supposed to fast. And there's been you know international news reports about that. So this got out, and the Indian press has been sort of raising this question. And saying basically, Pakistan, what do you think of the fact that China is not allowing people to fast during Ramadan? And so this elicited a finally a reaction from Pakistan, saying they were sending a delegation to investigate the, these allegations that fasting had been prohibited in Xinjiang, and that delegation was is being entertained in Urumqi, I think, probably even right now. So there was actually I saw a news report this morning from Dawn, uh, the Pakistani newspaper yeah. website, complaining that the delegation was basically a junket paid for by the Chinese government, and that they weren't going to see anything that they would find offensive. Right, of course, <laughs> so that kind of thing happens, and there have been hints of this before, actually in associated with the Urumqi riots, but also with some of the terrorist acts. In the past, you know, murmurings from some Arab countries, certainly Turkey in particular, has been critical of Chinese policy towards Uyghurs and towards Islam in general at, at certain points. And so there's, Xinjiang is definitely a thorn in the side, and in particular, the party's approach to its security concerns in Xinjiang runs counter to many of the ideas of Obor right. when it comes to that. So it's it's a Curious conundrum. What yeah, what's Beijing's way? For, I mean, it's and it's a ridiculously big question right now. But I feel like not much has improved. They've done nothing but to sort of militarize many of the the oasis towns where they've 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 had particular trouble. You know, as you say, cracking down on the on on religious observance by by some folks, and they've tried to push this line. Uh, uh, connecting what we've seen happening in Xinjiang with Salafist or sort of global jihadism, uh, 
while there's maybe some evidence to suggest there's there's been kind of a, a really strong reaction against this idea by a lot of Western observers who suggest that, that there are no ties. Uh, right. What's your take on this? So for a long time, you know, Western observers, which includes some journalists, which includes some scholars, uh, people in the professorate such as myself, we were skeptical of a lot of Chinese claims, and not just Chinese claims, claims from you know, sort of anti-terrorism think tanks and so on, that anytime there was violence or demonstrations or resistance in Xinjiang you know, coming from Uyghurs, uh, that this must be the, uh, you know, the, this is the beginnings of Islamic terrorism or of jihadism or, and so on. Now, I say for a long time, I mean starting really in the 1980s and through the 90s. And I think for many, many years, uh, we were right that, in fact, the 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 ties were really tenuous. We're tenuous, best. and and often best, if, you, yeah. if you could, you know, when there were events that you could understand, you know, a, a riot or something like that, not on the scale of the Arumchi riots, but you know, smaller scale things, demonstrations, they had nothing to do with international terror groups, certainly, and they were only marginally associated with uh, with Islam, uh, insofar as. You know, Islam is the religion of the people who were carrying it out, but there were probably, you know, in the mix of what are the motivations for any kind of act of resistance. Are they religious? Are they ethno-nationalist? Are they just because I'm a citizen who's pissed off? Right. Right. In that mix, I think, you know, religion per se for many years was relatively low. Okay. So I, I once called it the dog that, that hasn't barked in Xinjiang. Uh -huh. right? Now, that dog has certainly barked. And um, you mentioned Chinese concerns about slowness of American officials to, as you said, use the T word to call it terrorism, in particular around the time of the Arumqi riots in July of 2009. July of 2009 and, and thereafter. And I think eventually the State Department and, you know, White House did come out and, you know, just sort of call it that. And right. that, that argument is akin to, you know, arguments in the United States today. Um, why won't you call it Islamic? Why won't you call it? Right, yeah, because it's more complicated than that. Right. And just a simple label is not going to solve the problem. But in any case, you know, but certainly, I mean, what, what has happened with the events that you mentioned before, the Kunming knifings, um, there was a a couple of attacks in Arumchi, right? Um, you know, involving a small bomb and right. Uh, there was the jeep that crashed into Tiananmen, and right. perhaps right. So you know, with with those with those ones, it does seem to have been associated at least with the ideas of uh, of, of Salafism or of jihadism, and in particular, I think the tactics too. They're, they're really quite different. In other words, attacking random civilians in order to make a point. Rather than sort of say Rather a police station or right. just you know a demonstration that goes violent or attacks on on, on police or, paramilitary or, or, yeah yeah that's not which is not to say that I would condone or that Western observers would condone attacks on police stations or family planning clinics either things like that but that is a different sort of thing than you know, blowing up and killing random people in a in a train station and we tend to reserve the word terrorism. And we and and we look for the and and we see ties to other groups that do similar things, right? Attacking random civilians with those kinds of of acts, and so that's what started to happen now. And then the you know the question is, how then does Xinjiang leadership? 
how then does China uh, or you know the party respond? What do you do about that when there is a religious and ideological component that seems to be inspiring a small number of people because it is a small number of people, and also seems to be shaping the way shaping the acts that they take. They're choosing to do certain types of things because of this international influence. And that's a big problem. It's one, of course, that's shared now by European countries. It's shared by you know, the United States. Uh, the idea of the ISIS-inspired but not ISIS-controlled uh, or even ISIS-supported attack, such as we saw in Orlando recently. Sure, they pledge allegiance um, and then uh, yeah. do it. I, I think that's actually the closest analogy to uh, what we've seen in Xinjiang ah, over recent right. years. And things are going to get worse, aren't they? I mean, particularly if One Belt, One Road actually succeeds in increasing connectivity between Central Asia and Xinjiang, surely the flow of ideas I don't, I don't know necessarily... Is... Well, the flow of ideas is happening, right? And there's been... I mean, one of the one of the main efforts, sort of really quite extraordinary efforts that you know, the Chinese authorities have done has been to you know, try and control internet, Anything recorded, things like that, and you know, there's obviously going to be holes, and that has lots of other repercussions. I think negative ones. But you know, after the Urumqi riots, uh, Xinjiang was literally taken off the grid for something like yeah, like six or ten months, half a year, more than half a year, phone connections and everything else. And so that shows the extremes to which they will go trying to cut off this this flow of ideas. But ultimately, it doesn't take that much to get you know, sort of radicalized sermons and these sort of things in there. And then the problem is, and, and this is what we see with, I think, you know, Ramadan restrictions and restrictions on veils, re- restrictions on beards, all of those kind of things, is that, and, and again, this is not unique to China by any means. You see it in, in, in Europe, you see it in the United States, at least these tendencies. You even see it in, in places like Uzbekistan. Right? Yeah, to, yeah. To, 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 to see the whole religion or symbolic expressions of the religion as reflective of this particular virulent, violent idea of jihadism. And that's, of course, you know, not the case, but it's a very tempting way to go. I was looking at a couple of pictures that my wife passed to me that have been making the rounds. I don't know if you saw these. These are uh, pictures from Niujie. This is this is in Beijing. In Beijing, right, right. Uh, where of course it's a Hui population and not a Uyghur population mainly, but they were apparently very solicitous of this and allowing very very large public prayer uh, demonstrations, demonstrations of prayer, not demonstrations in that sense. I'm looking at a photo right now, an aerial shot of a major intersection in the Niujie Mosque area that's, that looks like it's absolutely packed with people on prayer rugs, right? I mean, I'd say there's several thousand people in this image. Yeah. And the fact that these aerial pictures have gotten out so easily, these are not you know, selfies that people are taking. No, these are planned. I mean, this, planned, is, right. this is right. And this is obviously part of China's Charm offensive. Set, exactly. Right. Well, to say, look, we are, we're not opposed to Islam. We support it. You know, we, we allow this kind of practice. And um, but unfortunately, it also underlines a, an inequity with regard to different Islamic groups in China, different Minzu. And, right. you know, Hui have been allowed to build mosques and, you know, young people are allowed to, to worship there. Even sometimes under 18, they can go into mosques, whereas all of that is forbidden um, to Uyghurs, to Uyghurs uh, particularly in Xinjiang. And there are, there's a whole range of these kind of discrepancies of, of, of law and, and how the law is. Okay, so we have a little more time. Um, not too long ago, there was this screed published by an historian at CAS, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, about the, the so-called New Qing history, calling all you, you know, revisionist imperialists associated with that movement. Uh, what is this so-called 
new Qing history? And what is it about your approach that got so under the skin of this particular researcher, this particular Chinese historian? So the new the new Qing history, I, I first heard that word used at a conference, the Association of Asian Studies. And I think it was a graduate student giving, you know, a PhD candidate giving a paper, and he referred to the, the new Qing history. And, you know, I had kind of a a chill went down my spine as soon as I heard it. Because once anything has a name, you know, the new anything, it means it's already old, right? So, <laughs> so I had, you know, intimations of my own uh, demise as soon as I heard that. Um, you were immediately included in that? Exactly. Well, so I... <laughs> I kind of have a marginal position, um, as anyone who works on Xinjiang does, who's sort of often out there in the frontiers. But essentially what it is, is I, I think it was a, a taking up of certain topics about uh, you know, the Qing dynasty, about late imperial China, starting in the late 80s and through the 90s. And these topics included the, you know, the Qing as an empire itself. So imperial expansion into Mongolia, Xinjiang, you know, Tibet. And this is why you were included in this. Uh, I mean, right, exactly. So Xinjiang area, is right. very much part of that, um, particularly in you know in the 18th century. Well, Qing frontier generally is your area, right? So right. So frontiers and and I had you know tried to make uh, frontiers and, and empire you know a thing in the field. Mark Elliott too. He would definitely fall right. And so that. then the other um, the other aspect I think the other most salient aspect of this was what we might call ethno-history or looking at ethnic difference, at cultural difference, at, we used to call it racial difference, it's not racial, but looking at that kind of difference between identity groups in the Qing itself. And that was a controversial thing to do even among American historians and scholars because because we're lumpers by nature. We don't want to, you know... To, to, well, but, but also, well, yes, the, for two reasons. One, there's a, a very old notion in Chinese studies that the Chinese always convert their conquerors, that you know, the, the processes of sinicization means that even if Manchus or Mongols or other groups came in, um, a they couple would generations in their Chinese acculturated right, right. to Chineseness. And so then to consider them different, you know, a couple generations in is no longer meaningful. And of course, it's politically in, in, incorrect in the Chinese context as well, because they, I mean, the C CPC has always wanted to elide these ethnic differences. Well, and it disrupts but, the glorious 5,000 well, years of history, doesn't it? If you have the Yuan dynasty not being actually Chinese. See, this is Chinese very interesting, and it's, and it's complex, because I think what it, the, the, the fight over, so anyway, the New Qing history took up this ethnic, you know, paid attention to these ethnic differences, particularly those of the Manchus, and you mentioned Mark Elliott and, and others, and then also the imperial expansion side. Now, Remember, you know, China is a, you know, technically a multinational, a multinational nation or multinational state. You know, it has these 56 minzu. And there's been a lot of effort spent trying to work out what that means in different contexts. You know, initially it was a Soviet context, which had a similar kind of approach to nationalities within an overall an overarching polity. Now, in the context of the world at large, what China used to China used to translate the word minzu into English as as nationality, following kind of a Russian term. Now they translate it as an eth ethnic group, following the way that Western countries talk about these 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 differences. Now th that can cut different ways, and you know, in the 1990s we saw this in in China a great I think sort of rehabilitation of the Qing, of this sort of imperial period as actually a great period, not as a time when everything went you know, when it all hit the fan and everything um, went to hell in a basket so much as a time when 
China was large and strong when there was a, you know, a reunification of territories that had been part of China in the past, in particular. This is Chinese, mainland Chinese historiography you're talking about. Historiography and and propaganda. So, you know, for example, you know, the Chengde Palace Complex, you know, which is a a favorite uh, sort of weekend retreat for people from Beijing and a very interesting place to go to. They would have stage shows, the sort of Chenlong Emperor stage show. And he would come out and be surrounded by dancing, you know, minority peoples. And everyone was happy and it was all one big family. Now, sort of Westerners look at this and are cynical. But you can read the writings of the Chenlong Emperor himself, and he literally uses the same terminology, you know, one big family and unifications and things like this. So it was an ideological approach to empire that was indigenous to China and was actually very successful. And and Chinese historians were recognizing how successful this Qing approach was. It was not assimilative for most peoples. Mm -hmm. So Mongols were not supposed to turn into Han, Manchus were you know, deliberately trying to keep themselves from turning into Han and so on. It was more of a, you know, now that we use mosaic and salad and all of these kinds of things. Right. But it was an assembly of different peoples under an imperial, a central imperial house, right? And it was quite, it was quite successful. And so there was a recognition of this and a celebration of that, just as there had been, you know, really from the 50s in China, a celebration of the, the different Minzu of the different peoples, each with their own culture and so on. Now, sometimes, again, Western observers see this and it can look kitschy and remind us of corny American Indian shows in America and things like this. But I think it was culturally meaningful for many Chinese Minzu as well. Take the Uyghurs, for example, to have their music, the Mukam, Enshrined or Enshrined right, right, right. and now it has UNESCO status and so on and so forth. This is a very big deal, right? It's recognition of the of the value of, of of a people, of a group as a unique group, even within China. So that that is very much part of the Chinese approach. And and you could argue that that policy approach since the nineteen fifties is as or even more liberal or, or successful than the various European and American approaches to ethnic difference. Right? We've all had problems, we've all had successes. Now, so how is that but, at odds with the but so-called so, nature? So, but what's happening now, as I think, is there is, and particularly with problems in Tibet, with problems in Xinjiang, with, with resistance that is seen as separatist, this touches that you know, red line of territorial control and sovereignty and makes leaders nervous. That, I think, together with a, a rising nationalism or nativism, sort of Han nativism, which, which one could argue is part of a global trend. Sure. We see it in Japan. We see it in India. We see it, obviously, in, in the, the United UK. States. In the UK, right. I mean, it, it, this is something that's worth a lot of thinking about, why this is going on everywhere at once. In any case, but in China, there is this you know, sort of stronger Han nationalism, it's sometimes called, and the, the party theoreticians who, who work on ethnicity issues and, and talk about it have, have really kind of split over more assimilationist approaches that say the solution to problems such as Xinjiang is to make people more Chinese, more Han, that is, and others who want to maintain the older system, which is still in the constitution of working with 56 Minzu as political and cultural units that are are enshrined administratively and legally and, and other ways like that. And that actually sort of protects their discrete status. I see, I see. 
Well, that's fascinating and worth a lot more conversation, but uh, we do have to sort of move on. But so, Jim, thanks again for, for taking the time, uh, and we really look forward to having you back on Seneca before too long. Uh, so before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. On to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off, man. What do you got? All right. I Sort of uh, in keeping with the theme of this podcast, I'd like to recommend two books by Peter Fleming, who's the brother of Ian Fleming, the creator of the, of James Bond. And the uh, author of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, and uh, Peter Fleming uh, wrote a bunch of books, many of which are connected to China. Two I'd like to uh, draw attention to are One's Company, uh, which was published in 1934, and uh, is a account of his uh, journey through the Soviet Union, uh, Manchuria, and into China. Uh, and the other one is uh, published in 1936, News from Tartary, A Journey from Peking to Kashmir. And it's it's very interesting. He That one, he wasn't alone. It wasn't one's company. He was accompanied by uh, a journalist named Ella... What's her name? Ella Maillard. Maillard, right. Maillard. 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 Ella Maillard. And uh, he's a wonderful writer. In fact, I might as well also recommend his book on the Boxer Rebellion, The Siege at Peking, which was my first introduction to the Boxer Rebellion and what foreigners living in Beijing at that time went through, which is a little bit worse than... What we went through. (laughs) What we went through. I the dare say. News from Tartary has a very memorable line in it. Our inconsiderable baggage was loaded onto the back of nine mules. <laughs> <laughs> so they traveled Travel differently in, in those yeah. days. Yeah. Oh my well, God. In style. You know, you need. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the guy in Yunnan carried around in a bathtub? Um, <laughs> The, 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 the guy in Yunnan? Yeah, no. It's Joseph sort of, Rock? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it is. It's just Rock. It was Joseph Rock, right? He was carried around in a bathtub. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not by mules, but by, by actual, you know, virgins from something uh, like that. Burma. Oh, yeah. Jim, what do you have for us? All right. Well, I, um, keeping with the Xinjiang theme, I want to very, very quickly just list the authors of three new books and two upcoming books on history of Xinjiang. We have an explosion. Of oh, wow. One, young scholars who are coming out with books are about to come out with, you know, marvelous stuff. So, one is um, Ryan Thumb, who has a book called Sacred Roots of Uyghur History. David Brophy has a new book called Uyghur Nation. Justin Jacobs, a new book called Xinjiang in the Modern Chinese State. And then coming up soon will be a book by Kwang uh, Min Kim, uh, Borderland Capitalism. It's about sort of trade in, among Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, in the Qing. And then a book by Judd Kinsley, K-I-N-Z-L-E-Y, uh, on oil and ore and mining in Xinjiang, again, in the concept of, uh, in the context of, sort of modernization in Xinjiang. So these dealing with, you know, 19th, 20th, and 18th century, uh, taking us well beyond the sort of, uh, meager offerings that were available uh, on Xinjiang history before that. And if I may, you may. On, a, on a sort of more fun note, um, there's a wonderful little... Uh, film clip video uh, online, and you probably know this, by Abigail Washburn and some of her friends who did a, a trip around China, and they've been in Mongolia and Tibet, and they went out to Xinjiang. And um, it's called Silk Road Tour. 
and there's number 10 where they're in Turpan, and my favorite is number 11, because they go to Urumqi, and they end up jamming with a bunch of excellent Uyghur musicians on American uh, folk tunes, in particular one uh, Wayfaring Stranger, which harmonically works beautifully with Uyghur music. And everyone, these, these Uyghur musicians jump in, and they can you know, play the hell out of these tunes. And they're all sitting around the wreckage of a huge dinner. So uh, it's a wonderful little clip, and it, it really speaks to the meaning of the Silk Road That's a today to me. recommendation. And, uh, you know, having talked to Abby about that, I know that that totally freaked out their government minders. <laughs> it totally freaked out their government minders. Yeah, I can imagine why that, that would be the case. Cool. Wow. I have to check that one. I haven't seen that for some reason. I, I thought I was a, a follower of all things Abigail Washburn, but I will check it out. My recommendation is um, flushing queens as an object or a subject of anthropological and or culture studies inquiry because it's just a weird place, man. I had never, I hadn't been there. I mean, I was probably there as a child um, when I, I grew up in upstate, but as, as everyone probably knows, it's become this massive Chinese enclave. It, be, it was sort of Mandarin Chinatown. I mean, beginning in the 70s, there were a lot of people from from Taiwan, especially sort of, you know, the Waishengren who settled there. And through the 90s, I mean, there were, there were waves of, of Fuzhou people and then people from the hinterland of, of, of Fujian. But uh, in recent years, it's it's sort of the destination for a lot of recent immigrants from, from the PRC. And boy, I mean, I was just, I, I wasn't really quite prepared as I drove in, went down Main Street and, you know, it was. It's just an. Jim, you've been there. Before. I've been there a lot. I, yeah. I like it. Yeah, good food. Oh my it's god! So food. I got yeah. Some of the best Chinese food. And in I've the had United Chinese States. say it's like better than many parts in China. That's probably yeah. hyperbole. But Sichuan gourmet. Yeah. Sichuan gourmet. Definitely. It's you know S Z E C H W A N Sichuan gourmet. And they have a branch in Manhattan that I've eaten at as, as well. But this one, it's on like on 39th Street. In, in it's just amazing. Really great. Really great. Well, one of the things that fascinates me about. You know, flushing is it's it's very different from the your your image of the traditional American Chinatowns, right. which are you know Cantonese and were generally founded in the early twentieth or late nineteenth century, something like that. And you know, it looks very different. It looks more maybe like I don't know, small rural Chinese city. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you that's know, that's what it, looks, shot. it feels and like to me. I had um, buildings and cheap signs. Well, and the big. If I can tell you one anecdote, I was there and it was just beginning to rain. I just gotten off the train, you know, at Flushing and went out. And a lot of people clustered around somebody who was selling raincoats. And it was actually an African-American guy who was selling these cheap, you know, $5 plastic raincoats. And he was saying, Wu Kuai, Wu Kuai, Yi Jian Wu Kuai. You speak in Chinese. Wow. $5, $5, one piece, $5. And so, um, and everyone was sort of buying. And that's the thing in flesh. You can speak Chinese there no, if you're, you know, white or black or whatever. No one bats an eye. Right. It's like the lingua franca. Um, anyway, so I went up to him and I said, it's great. Your Chinese is good. You know, can you say anything else? And he said, sure, man. Ten dollars a piece. At least he knew how to go up. <laughs> We're gonna uh, go out with a, a, a little different iteration on our our um, opening music. Uh, Jim and I are gonna jam a little bit of "The Huntsman" by Trinxiao. Uh And meanwhile, the Cynical Podcast is powered by Sub China and is produced by Kaiser Guo, myself, and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks this week to An La Cheng to Amadeo, to Mamillo, and to Soraya Darabi from SupChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter 
at at Cynical Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks again, Jim. That was great, man. Thanks, Kaiser. Yeah. Thanks, and Jeremy. Jeremy, we'll we'll catch you guys next week. Take care. <laughs>